Well, it's really going to happen. We're going to finish this book of Ruth. Today we come to the end of our study through the book of Ruth. I hope it's been enjoyable and informative for you. A story that began with such hopelessness and sorrow is now resolving with promise and joy. Naomi and Ruth, who had both lost husbands to death, and Naomi, doubly afflicted with the loss of two sons, had no doubt once considered themselves cursed and abandoned by God. But as we come to the close of the fourth and the final chapter in this little book, they, and now we, see how God's merciful hand was all along working out a plan for their salvation. A plan of redemption that would not only reverse the course of their lives, but that would lead to something they never would have imagined, the eternal redemption of countless others through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of their descendant, Jesus Christ. Father, as we open your word today, we always do so humbly, at least we seek to. We want to sit at your feet. We want to hear your truth. We want to be impressed by your spirit. We want you to receive the honor and the glory. As we drink in this truth, Lord, help us to receive it for the way in which it was intended. Help it to change us, to change our minds, to change our perspectives. Help us, Lord, to be conformed to you through the receiving of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we pick up the final scene of the story, Ruth and her new husband, Boaz, are celebrating the birth of a, of a new baby boy. And the women of the village, some we might expect were present for the delivery of this child, share in the elation of that birth. These ladies are excited to see this baby, and they're also very excited for their friend, Naomi, for she had limped into Bethlehem, you might remember, from 10 or so years in a place called Moab, and when she returned home, she was hardly recognizable. She arrived sad, defeated, deflated, uh, with little cause for hope, but circumstances have changed dramatically for her, and her friends are rejoicing with her. And in their praise, they prophesy about this little baby. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. The message paraphrase of this verse says, he'll make you young again. So those of us who are grandparents are like, yes, because that's what grandkids do. Not, not for the whole day, because we still have to nap, but they make us young again. Right? We get down on the floor with the little grandkids, even though we know that's silly because we don't have a plan to get back up. <laughs> He'll make you young again, they said. He'll take care of you in your old age. This new baby is such a great blessing to Naomi. Did the ladies act and speak as if he were Naomi's own? Did you catch that in verse 17? A son has been born to Naomi. Of course, it's Naomi's in the way. He's carrying on the line of Elimelech. But they also know that Naomi didn't give birth to this child. They know who did, and they give credit there also where credit is due. This little bundle of joy, this blessing, has come to Naomi through another blessing in her life, through the faithful love of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who the women proclaim is more to you than seven sons. Seven in biblical language is symbolic of perfection, of fullness, 
of completion. In other words, you've got this wonderful woman named Ruth in your life, and it doesn't get any better than that. Naomi has joy on this day because Ruth, whose name means companion, by the way, whose name means friend, was absolutely, completely, selflessly devoted to her. More than we might grasp at first glance, which has been the case throughout the reading of this book, there's always more that meets the eye. You have to stop and think it through a little bit. David Crabtree wrote an article, More Than Seven Sons, How Ruth Teaches Us to Care for Our In-Laws. He says, Rather than pursuing a young dude to serve her own desires, Ruth pursues an older man because she knows that he can take care of her mother-in-law. At least in Boaz's eyes, that was a meaningful sacrifice that once again demonstrated Ruth's loyal love for Naomi. She was willing to choose the husband that most benefited her mother-in-law, not necessarily herself. She was willing to sacrifice for her in-law. And because of Ruth's self-sacrificial love, the women of Bethlehem tell Naomi that she has found in Ruth a daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. Notice how the final scene of this story is dramatically different than the opening. The prologue, the first five verses, the message entitled From Bad to Worse left us all feeling pretty hopeless and helpless. And What started in the lonely land of Moab where death and sorrow reigned concludes, friend, in this promised land of Israel with life and joy. And with this life in joy literally sitting in Naomi's lap. And the parting picture, the last impression of the narrative is that of a proud grandmother whose present delight relegates a sorrowful past to the place of ancient history. And Naomi now has new hope and new life and new meaning in life. The scripture tells us that she took the child and she laid him on her lap and became his nurse. So I, I read that verse and I heard this, give me that baby. <laughs> I have heard that many times over the year when the newborn comes, give me that baby. Let me get my hands on that baby. Let me put that baby in my lap and stare at that little one and look at all those features and count the fingers and the toes and give me that baby. and Let me be in awe of what God has done. There really is something beautiful about getting your hand on a newborn. And that's just what Naomi is doing, checking him out, stem to stern, I promise you that. And she is overjoyed. She's not going to be an absent, uninvolved grandparent. She will happily spend the remainder of her life loving and caring for this unexpected kindness this gift of a child, an heir, a kinsman, who's going to carry on the family line. But what's his name? Everybody wants to know that, don't they? When you say, hey, so-and-so had a baby, what's his name? Give us the specifics if you can. We want the length, we want the weight. But what's his name? The scripture says, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. That strike anybody else's on? I know when it comes to naming babies, we sometimes ask for suggestions. I've seen that. What do you think? 
I know they print out little books all the time of the most popular names in a given time frame. I know family members can be quite interested in a child's name, particularly if they want that child's name to carry on a legacy. It could be named after a father or mother, a grandmother or grandfather. And I happen to like to do genealogy. Maybe you do too. And it's always wonderful to see how families preserve those names through generations. So all of that is familiar to us. And I even read in scripture how God supernaturally reveals the names of certain people, right? John the Baptist, you'll call him John or Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. But I have never heard of a name given by the women of the neighborhood. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know how that happens. And, and I, I, I know it takes a village to raise a kid, but this takes community involvement to a whole new level, one I'm not comfortable with. It's probably not the case that the women actually showed up to name the child, but it is quite conceivable that they had some influence in naming this little one, giving counsel as to what his name ought to be. It says they named him Obed. Obed, his name means one who serves. I think you have seen throughout the study of this book, names in Old Testament narrative can really be significant. One who serves. And it alludes to this wonderful truth that he's going to serve his Grammy. He's going to serve his grandmother as a source of joy, as the restorer of her life, as a nourisher in her final years. And somewhat prophetically, he will serve others. History teaches us this. He will serve others by his place in the line of more well-known Bible figures. And with that, a beaming Naomi with a grandbaby on her lap, the story of the book of Ruth draws to a close. What has it taught us? What have we learned over these two months or so with this little book? Well, maybe we've learned a little bit about reading Old Testament narratives, the importance of reading slowly, the importance of reading for understanding, the importance of knowing the setting, knowing the culture. Again, as I just mentioned, the significance of names. Hopefully we have learned or been reminded about the sovereignty, the providence, the goodness of God that he is actively, even imperceptibly, involved in his creation, that he has total authority over the affairs of man. Hopefully the teaching from this story will find application in our lives. I don't think that's a stretch at all, because don't we as believers know what it is to be pilgrims in a strange land? And don't we understand what it is to encounter unwanted and uninvited trials? And we all can connect a list of fears or problems that have varying degrees of threat or sorrow attached to them to our lives. At any given time, every one of us, as noted last week, has or will spend time living in a world that seems aimlessly tumbled about, can seem very arbitrary at times can seem almost senseless and yet we are encouraged to remember that in all things God is everywhere at work 
Charles Spurgeon put it this way in one of his devotions on the book of Ruth. He said, it is a sweet thing to be able to trace the hand of God in our affliction. For nothing can come to one of his children from that hand except what is good and right, but what infinite wisdom directs and infinite love has ordained. The events of the story of Ruth, just like the events of our lives, are not coincidence, but reflect God's providence. The God who sees ahead is orchestrating the details of the three main characters' lives just the same way, beloved, that even now he's fulfilling his plans for you and me. As Chris prayed, who are we? David prayed before that, who are we? That you are mindful of us. And yet this is the truth. He is very much mindful of us. He is very much involved and invested in this world that is broken and marred by sin. He is very intimately concerned with your life. And that's a truth designed to give us hope. Now let's recap just for a second what we've come through over the past few weeks of our study, the reversals that we have seen, and then we're going to wrap this book up the way the book wraps up, with the best that is to come. But in the beginning, widowhood, childlessness, sorrow. In the end, marriage, family, and exceeding joy. In the beginning, a sense of God's hand of judgment against. In the end, a celebration of God's hand of blessing for. In the beginning, lack, empty cupboards, and a need to glean for scraps to survive. You remember that? In the end, fullness, food, and wealth. In the beginning, a Jewish is a stranger in a foreign land. A Moabitess is at home there. In the end, the Jewish returns home to a promised land, and the Moabitess converts and finds a better home under the wings of the God of Israel and her Redeemer, Boaz. In the beginning, restlessness. In the end, rest. In the beginning, no one to care, no one to provide, no one to perpetuate the family line. In the end, a redeemer, a husband, a son. Now the point is not that every story has a guaranteed happy ending. They don't. So don't read Ruth and say, well, this means it's always going to have a happy ending. No, the point is that this one has a happy ending. God is able to turn mourning into dancing, and that's what happens in the book of Ruth. Tragedy turns to triumph because of the sovereign plan of God, whose thoughts, as the prophet Isaiah reminds us, are not our thoughts, and whose ways are not our ways. In fact, this plan of God that brings beauty from ashes would not only work out for the good of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. That would be noteworthy enough. That is, right, taken just at that, this story is worth reading and pondering just for that, how things worked out for these main characters. But do you understand it's actually part of a greater plan that would work out first for the good of Israel and then for the salvation of the world? As one writer has put it, the book of Ruth tells a story that resolves in chapter 4, yet is still heading somewhere. 
the concluding verses of Ruth are a genealogy. Many books of the Bible contain genealogies. As far as I know, Ruth is the only one that ends with one. And some have suggested the purpose of the book is found in these final lines. That the whole purpose of the book is found in these final lines. Verses 18 to 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And you read that and go, okay. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. This is a sort of scripture a lot of people just read over, right? Without much thought. In fact, you might have skipped it in your reading of this story because those names probably don't mean much to you. So you started going there on verse 18 and you stumbled over a couple of names and said, the heck with this. I don't know these people. I don't need to know these people. Let me suggest that as the book of Ruth begins in that decidedly downward arc of human suffering and death, it concludes with the contrasting upward arc of human deliverance and eternal life. You see, the events of this book took place in the pre-Davidic time of the judges where godlessness and chaos reigned and the people were seeking a king. This story figures into that quest and is a narrative account of God's answer to Israel for a good king, a king named David. The situation might not have seemed hopeful at the time of the judges, but God had a plan that would not be thwarted. His anointed, David, would bring order out of the chaos, restore honor to God in worship, and bring military conquest and might. And a Jewish reader would see the name at the end of this book and be comforted and be proud and say, Oh, yes, David. This concluding genealogy for the Jewish reader, continues the story. It leans forward into what was to come, and it connects the dots. It's a piece to the story, part of the line of our King David, the king from which the Messiah would descend. So for the Jewish reader, this story pushes forward. And to the Christian leader, it pushes forward even further. Because the last word of the story is David. But David's not the last word of the story. Ruth is the story of the line of an even greater king. King Jesus, the son of David. This is the story of how God preserved the line of the family who would bear his eternal son. How God ensured that salvation would come to the world for all who believe in him. You see, friends, the book of Ruth is a love story with a direct link to the greatest love story of all, the love of God in Christ for the world. As many preachers have pointed out over the years, Boaz sacrificed for Ruth, Naomi, and his clan. David sacrificed for his nation, Jesus Sacrifice to the point of death for his bride, the church, his spiritual family across the world. That Boaz gave rest to Ruth by giving her security in the relationship of marriage, gave rest to Naomi by giving her a son. David gave rest to Israel by defeating her enemies 
And Jesus gives everlasting rest through the defeat of our enemy, death. And he makes the church his bride and offers the gift of eternal life to those who would believe. That Boaz made sure the name of the dead would continue. That David made sure the people of Israel would continue and not be wiped out. But Jesus, by his sinless life, atoning death and resurrection, made sure the dead would rise again. And those who believe in him would have eternal life. We are heartened by this story of Ruth. I didn't know if you felt it, but I surely did at times, reading portions of it and thinking, why does this feel so good? Because it resonates with the gospel truth of God's love and providence and care and involvement and investment. That we have a God who has a beautiful plan of salvation and that it will not be thwarted. It will not be defeated. Nothing can stop the beautiful plan of God. It will prevail. Doesn't matter what your circumstances are right now. I'm telling you, God is bigger. His will will prevail. Our God brought Israel out of the chaos of the period of the judges and restored to them a kingdom through David. Our God delivers the people of the world out of the chaos and destruction of sin and makes us part of his eternal kingdom of light through Jesus. And listen, seeing how he will, his will was accomplished for Ruth, for David, for Israel, for Jesus, and through Jesus for us, we have confidence, or we ought to, that the remainder of his plan will come to pass as well. <laughs> Think it through. This is part of the application of this book. Our God is to be trusted and his plans will come to pass. Ruth pushes forward to David. David pushes forward to Jesus. And Jesus pushes forward to eternity. John Calvin wrote, For there, before there, that is believers' eyes, will be that day when the Lord will receive his faithful people into the peace of his kingdom will wipe away every tear from their eyes, will clothe them with a robe of glory and rejoicing, will feed them with the unspeakable sweetness of his delights, will elevate them to his sublime fellowship, in fine, will deign to make them sharers in his happiness.